This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, GYC. Good morning. I didn't hear anyone respond. <laughs> Is it a good morning? All right. I want to just share that it's a very high honor and a great privilege to stand before you here this morning and sharing in the morning devotionals. I want to thank God first and foremost as well as the GYC team for orchestrating this wonderful opportunity for us to come to press together in preparation for our Lord Jesus soon return. How many of you are thankful to be here at GYC? Amen. To begin this morning, I want to make a few comments upon this year's theme called Chosen and Faithful. These solemn words come from a very powerful prophecy in the book of Revelation chapter 17. A prophecy pointing to a time when the nations of the world are going to come together. Not in a one world government or some type of new world order, but an ecumenical unity where differences are going to be put aside for the common good of all. It's a time when the nations will come together in one mind, the Bible says. One goal, one intent one resolve, one agenda. And they're going to come together in unity. And unity sounds good in a world that is fragmented and divided and torn apart. But the Bible tells us in this solemn prophecy in the 17th of Revelation that the inevitable results of this unity is that they're going to look upon the beast and they're going to give their power and strength to the beast. And it says that they're going to make war with the Lamb. And as the world is coming together in unity, to fight against God and the truth of God and ultimately the people of God. The Bible tells us that in this controversy, the Lamb wins. And they that are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. I'm so thankful, friends, that in this war between good and evil, and as the world is coming together today to fight against God and the truth of God, that we are on the winning team when we're on the Lamb's team. Amen? that we don't have to be afraid of the beast as long as we are connected with the wonderful Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so this morning and the, other, uh, and, the, and the following mornings for our morning devotional time, I want to share with you some messages that have been crafted to remind us that we don't have to be afraid of what's happening in the last days. We just have to be with Jesus. We want to share some messages to remind us of what it means to be called, chosen, and faithful. I want to share with you two messages, really, broken up into four parts that deal with that theme. And so this morning's presentation is entitled, Called, Chosen, But Unfaithful. Called, Chosen, But Unfaithful. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Matthew. And we're going to go to the 12th chapter as we begin our Bible study this morning. Matthew chapter 12, as we study called, chosen, but unfaithful. Matthew chapter 12, and notice in this passage, the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders of the, during the days of Christ presents a very vain and immodest request to the Lord Jesus. Notice what it says here in Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38, but let us pray first. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord for gathering us together as your children in this place, that we might press together, that we might draw closer to you. And Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this room 
fill our hearts. Give us clarity of thought and an open heart to receive the message of this hour. Speak to us, Lord, not only corporately as a church, but personally and individually as your child. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. If you're there and if you're ready to study the Bible this morning, would you let me know by saying amen? The Bible says in Matthew 12 verse 38, Then some of the teachers, excuse me, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we would see a, what do they want? A sign from thee. Here the Pharisees and scribes are asking Jesus to perform some type of sign to prove his Messiahship. Now we have to understand that these seekers were skeptical. But they had no reason to be skeptical because they had abundant evidence in the Word of the character, mission, and identity of the Messiah. These were the guardians of the Torah, the expositors of the sacred writings. These were the facilitators of the temple services, the shepherds of the flock of God, the priests of the Most High. These who had been entrusted with much light, must, much knowledge, are asking Jesus to perform some type of silly sign, some miracle, to prove himself to them. But Jesus responds to this presumptuous prayer request in verse 39, and he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it. Christ here refuses to satisfy the sight of their eyes. He would not perform some type of miracle, some silly sign to prove his Messiahship. Why? Because these religious leaders, as I mentioned, already had sufficient evidence that he was the Messiah in the prophetic word. And therein, in the Bible, the scrolls of the prophets was the character and the identity of the Messiah revealed. But these religious leaders are like many religious leaders and religious people today. They, instead of going by what the Bible clearly teaches, they wanted to be satisfied with their eyes. They want some type of outward demonstration, some type of burning in the bo bosom. But Christ refused to do it, friends, because our faith is not to be founded upon some sign or wonder or miracle, but upon the Word of God. This is the foundation of faith. The Bible tells us we walk by faith and not by sight, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so Christ refused to perform the miracle. He, ne he performed many miracles. But he never performed the miracle to prove himself. Because miracles are not the evidence of true faith. God wants us to live by the Word. However, there is one sign that Jesus would perform that would unmistakably verify his identity. Verify the fact that he is the Messiah. And notice what this sign is in verse 39. He continues the rest of verse 39. He said, But the sign of the prophet Jonas, verse 40, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So here we find Jesus telling the Pharisees, that there is one sign that he would perform that would verify his Messiahship. And that was the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, Jonah or Jesus is likening the experience of Jonah to that of himself. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, 
so he would be three days and three nights, not in the grave, but in the heart of the earth. This, my friends, this singular sign is the sign that Jesus gave to prove his Messiahship, and we're going to see today as well as tomorrow that it's the same sign that proves our discipleship to Jesus. It proves his Messiahship, but it also proves our discipleship. We're going to see that this sign is the evidence that we have been called and chosen, but it's also the power that enables us to be faithful in the last days. And so the question is this, what of Jonah teaches us about Christ? And what of Jonah teaches us about ourselves? Well, now I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Jonah as we look at this very famous story and see some things that perhaps we've never seen before. Notice what the Bible says. We're going to the book of Jonah chapter 1. And as you're turning there, first of all, who was Jonah? He was a prophet of God. He was the runaway prophet of the Lord. But nonetheless, he was one that God had called and chosen to do a special work. Jonah is a worshiper of the true God. He did not worship idols. He was the worshiper of Jehovah, the true God. But the question is, what constitutes a true worshiper of God? Well, Jesus told us in the book of John chapter 4 that the true worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. Not just in spirit, not just in truth, but both of these two things together constitutes a true worshiper of God. This is who Jonah is. For notice in his very name, we find his identity and by extension, his mission and his message. Notice Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, what is his daddy's name? Amittai. Now I want you to stop right there. That word Jonah in the original, it means dove. That's what the word Jonah means. It means dove. Now, what is the dove a symbol of in the Bible? It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Bible tells us that Jonah's father's name was Amittai, and that word Amittai in the original Hebrew, it means my truth. What does it mean, everyone? My truth. And so when you look at the very name of Jonah, which means dove, a symbol of the Spirit, the son of Amittai, my truth, we see that in Jonah's very name, we find his identity. He is a son of truth that is to be filled with the Spirit, a true worshiper that worships God in spirit and in truth. At least, this is what he was called and chosen to be. In other words, his identity is found in his very name, which by extension points out his mission and defines his message. In other words, Jonah's message is rooted, friends, listen, listen to the point. Jonah's message is rooted in his name or his identity. He is to be a messenger of spirit and truth. And that's the same for us. Now, what specifically is Jonah's message? Well, let's jump down to verse 9. Jonah chapter 1, and notice what Jonah said in verse 9. This is when he was on the boat speaking to the mariners, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I do what, everyone? Fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who did what? Made the sea 
and the dry land. So notice what Jonah says. Here's his, his message. I am a Hebrew. This is who I am. This is my identity. And by extension of who I am, I fear God, the one that made the sea and the dry lands, the true creator that made all things. I fear God, the one that made all things. And by the way, when Jonah went to Nineveh, he gave a message of judgment. Did he not? Basically, when he came to the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Nineveh, Jonah's message was that the hour of God's judgment is come. And so when you put that all together, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? I fear God, the one that made all things, and I'm here to tell you that the hour of his judgment has come. Friends, this is exactly what the first angel declares in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. The point is this, friends. Jonah's message is very similar to ours. Our message and our identity is the same as that of Jonah. God is calling us, friends, not only to be recipients of the message, but He's calling us to be participants of the mission. We're not always to be on the receiving end. God wants us and is calling us to be on, on the giving end. And so if you've received the gospel, if you've heard the truth, if you have been a recipient, automatically that enrolls you to be a participant because Christianity is not a spectator sport. God is calling us to receive so that we can give. And so the word came to Jonah first. He received this commission. And I want you to notice what God called Jonah to do. Verse 2, notice what it says. What is the first word that the word of God said Jonah or called Jonah to do? What is that first word in verse 2? It says, arise. My friends, I like that word, arise. It's a word that calls us to come up higher. You see, when the Word of God comes to us, God's Word is an uplifting Word. Man's Word brings us down, but God's Word brings us up. Whenever the Word of God comes to us, it's always a call to come up on higher ground. It's a call out of the darkness of deception and into the light of truth. God's Word and call to us is a call to come up out of the valley of despair, to stand upon the mountain of hope. It's a call to come out of the raging waves of worry and onto the peaceful shore of calm assurance. It's a word that calls us out of the bondage of bitterness and into the freedom of forgiveness, out of the slavery of sin and into the security of full salvation. And so, my brothers and my sisters, today, if you find yourself discouraged by your depressing circumstances, the Word of God calls you to arise. Arise and be encouraged by the reality that God is still the sovereign king sitting upon the throne of the universe, and come what may, he is still in control. Arise. Realizing that God can make a way when there seems to be no way, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. He can open the Red Sea like he did for Moses and provide a plain path before your feet. Or he will give you the power to walk on water like Peter did as a rider of the storm. And so I call you in the name of Jesus today to arise. Arise out of your discouragement. If you feel yourself ridden with guilt and shame because of the mistakes of your past, God's Word says to arise. Arise and receive the blessed assurance of the pardon and forgiveness that is so freely offered to us in Christ. The Bible tells us that we can come to Jesus just as we are, broken, filled with issues, messed up. God's love accepts us just as we are, but He loves us enough not to leave us as we are. Amen? 
Stop allowing the devil to rub your past in your face. Arise and wash in the fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins because the blood of Jesus is the best detergent to cleanse every stain of sin upon the garment of your life. And so today, if you're ridden with guilt and shame, arise. If you find yourself enslaved by the power of your own sinful flesh, perhaps it's the paralyzing addictions of drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's the consuming fire of lust pornography, adultery, fornication, or for others, it could be the chains of materialism in the form of gambling, wasteful spending, or selfish hoarding that holds you as a slave in the bondage to your stuff. Maybe it's the captivating lights and screens of, of the entertainment of the world, the computer screen or the TV screen or your phone screen in the church. Hollywood entertainment and social media and worldly music, all the sound bites and the flashing lights, whatever the sin, friends, big or small, our sovereign God sees it all. And today, His Word is calling us to arise. Arise and recognize that Jesus' blood not only pardons our path, past, but it gives us power to live a new life, a victorious life in the present. Arise. Stop eating the pig's food. Why will you live like beggars? when your father is rich. Arise like the prodigal son did and go back to the father's home. Arise and come back because you've been gone for too long. Your father misses you. His heart weeps for you, and heaven is not going to be the same if you're not there. Arise and let the father cover your wretchedness with his perfect righteousness. That's what God's Word calls Jonah to do. And friends, when we do that, we will see that the chains of bondage will fall off from our hands as we raise them up into surrender to our great God of heaven. For He, my friends, is the great chain breaker. He is the burden lifter, the undefeated emancipator, our faithful Father. And so in the name of Jesus, I call you today to arise. That's what God called Jonah to do. It was a call out of idleness and into action. It was a call to not be afraid or ashamed of his name, his identity, his mission and message. It was a call to stand up and to stand out and not be afraid to speak up and speak out for the cause of Christ. And so arise, arise and do what? Notice what is the very second word God says to Jonah? Arise and then the second word is what? Go. Arise and then go. Why, friends? Because where you are now is not where you ought to be, so you have to go. Go, why? Because you've been spiritually stagnant for too long, and if you want to grow, you've got to go. Go, why? Because God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But you won't know unless you go. Go, why? Because there's someone that's waiting for your arrival, someone that needs to see the things that your eyes have seen. Someone that needs to hear the words that your ears have, have heard. Someone out there in the world that must know the things that you know, and they won't know unless you go. Go and share the message with others. That's the same word Jesus said to the disciples, isn't that right? In that great commission, the Lord said, Go to all nations and preach all things. You see, friends, human nature is such that we are so quick to spread bad news 
and so slow to share good news. Isn't that right? The gospel that God is calling us to go and give is good news. But why is it, friends, that we are so hesitant to witness and share the gospel? You see, many books have been written. Many sermons have been preached. Many seminars have been conducted to teach people how to share their faith. And yet, despite all the books that have been written and all the sermons that have been preached, there is still a lack of laborers to reap the great harvest that's all around us. And friends, I want to submit to us this morning that what we need is not so much more opportunities to be trained. What we really need and what we really lack is a personal encounter and experience with the divine trainer. There's lots of training available to us. But what we lack is not training. What we lack is an experience. You see, my friends, when you experience something good, it's not hard to share it with someone else. If you tasted a good food, it's not difficult to convince someone else to try it out. The expression on your countenance and the enthusiasm in your voice is enough to convince someone else that what you have is good and they ought to try it for themselves. I'll never forget one Sabbath morning, I was getting ready to preach. And that morning, I was going to share a message on the importance of witnessing and sharing our faith. And with the mental preparation, I also needed the physical preparation of breakfast. And that morning, or a few days before that, some wonderful church member gave my wife and I a bag of mangoes. And that's what I had for breakfast. I must have eaten four or five mangoes that morning. And it was wonderful. How many of you like mangoes? If you don't like mangoes, it's, it's probably because you've never tasted a Hawaiian mango. Our mangoes in Hawaii are so good. And I remember I was eating these mangoes, mango after mango, and, and, and I was hunched over the sink just devouring these mangoes. The juice was flowing down my hands and arms, and all the fiber was getting stuck in my teeth, but I didn't care. It was a happy Sabbath that morning, let me tell you. And as I'm eating these mangoes and preparing in my mind to preach that morning, I'm asking God, Lord, what can I do to help others to see how sweet you are? Lord, what can I share this morning in church that will encourage someone to share their faith with their neighbors? And then I started thinking about the mango that was in my hand and, and how sweet and juicy and wonderful that mango was. It was filling. It was satisfying. And God impressed me. Just tell the people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see for yourself. You see, friends, when we taste and see for ourselves, and people see us tasting, then they're going to want to taste it for themselves as well. And so I started thinking about that mango, and, and, I, and I thought about the word mango, and in the word mango are two words. Man, go! <laughs> That's the Great Commission, friends. Man, go! That's what God called Jonah to do. You see, friends, here's the point. It's not hard to fulfill the Great Commission when we have experienced the sweetness of the Great Commissioner. Training is helpful. But remember, that which is your greatest qualification to go is your experience with God. When you have an experience with the divine mango, 
then it becomes easy to invite others to taste and see. Amen? I hope and pray you'll never look at a mango the same way ever again. I love what, what Ellen White said in the book, in, in, in the Review and Herald. I want you to notice as we read this quotation. Do you think that it is those men only who have been ordained as gospel ministers that are to work for the uplifting of humanity? Here's her answer. No. No, she says it twice. Everyone who names the name of Christ is expected by God to engage in this work. How many people, friends? Everyone. The hands of ordination may not have been laid upon you, but you are nonetheless God's messengers. If you have, what is that next word? Tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you know his saving power, you can no more keep from telling this to someone else than you can keep the wind from blowing. The point is this, friends. When we have tasted and seen for ourselves, when we have an experience, training is helpful, but it's not really the most important thing. What we really need is an experience. When the wind of the Holy Spirit blows, the fire of evangelism is going to grow. I'll never forget when I first came to the Lord. I was 16 years old, and time will not permit me to share my whole testimony, but let me give you the short version. As a 16-year-old, I was not raised up in the church or any church. Growing up, I had no idea what was God or who was God, totally ignorant of spiritual things. And as a result of not having a strong spiritual foundation, I made a lot of mistakes. That was me. I was a druggie, burning up my brain cells, chasing the world, not caring about anyone but myself. And in this lost condition, God sent someone to my door, another young person who was 16, 17 years old. And these two individuals knocked on my door, and they invited me to a Bible prophecy seminar. Have you ever heard of something like that before? And I went to those meetings. For the first time in my life, I learned about Jesus. In the context of his prophetic word, in the three angels' messages, and as these wonderful truths were being presented, Jesus was magnified, and the Lord in those meetings rescued me from the terrible life of drugs and emptiness. He set me free from that love lifestyle in one prayer, and he set me ablaze. He turned me on fire for him. I knew him, and as a result, my greatest desire was to make him known to others, to know Christ and to make Christ known, because what God is calling us to be and do. And so what happened was this. I was 16 years old, and I went back to my old public high school, the place where people used to know me as a chronic, as a stony boy, as a pothead. I went back to that public high school, and I just let the light shine. I would pass out Steps to Christ all over campus in this public high school. I would go back to my friends who I used to do drugs with, and I would witness to them, and they would try to tempt me and say, oh, you want to get high, don't you? I would say, no, thanks. I found a better high, a spiritual high. You got to taste it for yourself. I would preach in English class and I would be sharing my faith and the security guards, whenever they saw me talking to someone during class, they left us alone. They didn't tell us to go to class because they knew that I was encouraging and, and giving counsel to other students. And I held Bible studies every lunch period, every single day. And I would invite the whole school to come. I was 16 years old, 
I was the only one in that school that, that I knew of that, 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 that was interested in these things. And I would invite all my friends and, and many people, multitudes would come to this Bible study. So, uh, students as well as teachers would come. I love what John Wesley said. Catch on fire and people will come for miles to see you burn. And so people were coming to these Bible studies and, and they saw the fire in my life and because of that, they were open to hear it proclaimed on my lips. Now, you have to understand, friends, that I was not trained to give Bible studies. I'd never gone to some type of Bible training seminar at that point. I was 16 years old, just recently converted and baptized, and I was the least likely candidate to preach. I was slow of speech and introverted and very shy. My vocabulary was very limited, but nonetheless, there was a fire in my heart, and I just had to share it with others. And so every lunch period, I would just open my Bible and open my mouth, and the Word of God would speak. And as a result of those Bible studies, six of my friends and their family members Members were baptized, accepted Christ, as well as the great truths that we believe. Amen? It was wonderful. Now, friends, I share that simply to say this. I'm just a beggar trying to share some bread. Nothing special with me. Nothing that I have to boast about except the mercy of God on my life. I share that simply to encourage you that if God can use someone like me, surely He can use any one of us. Amen? So arise. And go. Training is helpful. But the most important thing that we need is an experience with a divine trainer. So come and taste for yourself. Then go and share with others. You are called to come. You are chosen to go. Man, go. But go where, God? Notice verse 2. Our eyes go to what? Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness is come up before me. So notice God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a great city, and Jonah was to give a loud cry message to Nineveh. Does that sound familiar? In Revelation 14, 8 and 18, 4, we find the same thing. Another great city called Babylon, a wicked city that God is calling us to give a loud cry message to. So friends, Nineveh and Babylon are our are, are type. Nineveh is a type of Babylon. Babylon is a reflection of Nineveh. Nimrod was the same founder of Nineveh and Babylon. And in the Bible, both Nineveh and Babylon are symbolized by the same animal, that of a lion. The point is this. Jonah's mission was to give a message of spirit and truth, a loud cry message to Nineveh. And that's the same mission that God has given to us. So arise and go and give the loud cry. My friends, let's never be ashamed of our name, our identity, our mission, and our message. Jonah had a God-given name that stood for something, and so God has given us a name. Notice what it says in the book, The Faith I Live By, page 304. We are Seventh-day Adventists. Are we ashamed of our name? We answer, no, no, we are not. It is the name the Lord has given us. It points out the truth that is to be the test of the churches. The name Seventh-day Adventist carries the true features of our faith in front. It will convict the inquiring mind like an arrow from the Lord's quiver. It will wound the transgressors of God's law, and it will lead to repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah had a name that stood for something. God has given us a name that stands for something as well. Let's never be ashamed of our name or our, our identity. For our name, friends, points to the great truth of the great God 
that made all things in six literal days and rested on the seventh day of the week to remind us that he is the true God, the true creator, that we are made in his image and he has a plan and purpose for our life. Seventh day reminds us of the God of creation, and the word Adventist reminds us of that same God that made all things, who's coming back. He's returning to restore all things. The name Seventh-day Adventist points to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. It encompasses the entire gospel message, the everlasting gospel from beginning to end. The Lord of creation and the Lord of restoration. It glorifies the one that made all things and is soon to return to restore all things. Not only that, but our name points to the great truth of righteousness by faith. For the Sabbath, friends, listen carefully, the seven-day Sabbath, rightly understood, highlights the fact that we cannot save ourselves by our own works. It invites us to rest in the completed work of Christ at the cross and the continued work of Christ for us in the most holy place. That's what our name means. And so, friends, don't let anyone tell you that your name is not important. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the distinctive doctrines that we hold don't really matter. For everything that God has revealed from Genesis to Revelation is significant and important and irrelevant. Jesus said concerning the Scriptures, These are they which testify of me, and the testimony of Jesus is revealed in the spirit of prophecy. And that's not just one prophet in the last days, but it's God speaking through every single prophet from the beginning all the way to the end. And so, friends, let us arise and let us go and give our whole message to the world, a message founded upon the Word, focused in Christ, framed in prophecy, and filled with the Spirit. Let us go. Beware of one-sided preaching that throws us off balance. And let us not have anything to do with this ecumenical unity, this counterfeit unity that is sweeping across the world today, a unity that sacrifices the truth for the sake of the Spirit. The Bible says that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And why not? Because, friends, God, like Jonah, has given us a name that points to our identity and our identity that defines our mission and a mission that reveals our message. And so when we water down or change our message, it results in an identity crisis. So let's not forget our identity. Let's not neglect our mission. Let us arise and let us go and let us live up to the God-given name that he's placed upon us. Amen? That's what God called Jonah to do. God called Jonah. He chose Jonah. He was called, chosen, but unfortunately, he was unfaithful. Called, chosen, but unfaithful. Because notice what happens next. Verse 3. What did Jonah do? But Jonah arose to flee to where? Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So notice, friends, Jonah turns from God's mission. He rose up simply to go down in disobedience. And he's fleeing to Tarshish, a land of luxury, to quiet his conscience. You see, friends, Tarshish was a port city located on the southern coast of Spain. And this city in the Bible was known for their wealth, known for their gold, in fact. And if you were to do a word study on the word Tarshish in the Bible, you'll note that Tarshish was a, was a proverb. It was a, a symbol of a place of ease, a place of wealth, a place of comfort, and a place of luxury. And this is where Jonah is going to in order to avoid his mission. 
instead of doing that which was right, he was seeking to do that which was comfortable. Because in this crowded city, he was trying to silence the voice of reason. He was trying to escape his duty. Instead of doing that which was right, he was seeking to do that which was easy. And which direction did he go? Instead of arising and going up, the Bible says that he went down, down, down to Joppa. That word Joppa in the Bible means beautiful. He's seeking for a place of ease and luxury and beauty. And even though he's seeking for beauty, things are about to get ugly for Jonah. Why was Jonah so hesitant in going to Nineveh? There are two main reasons. Number one, Nineveh was way out of his comfort zone. You see, Jonah, uh, like the rest of the Jews, looked upon other nations as unclean, fit only for destruction. Jonah was far more comfortable preaching and being with his own people. He had experienced a lot of success preaching to Israel. But now God is calling him to Nineveh. It was way out of his comfort zone and Jonah was not willing to do it. The second reason why Jonah was so hesitant to go to Nineveh is because Jonah had a reputation to preserve. He knew that if he went to Nineveh and said that it was going to be destroyed, and if they repented and God spared the city, then Jonah would have been looked upon as an alarmist, an extremist, a false prophet. He would have been labeled as such, and so Jonah did not want to risk this taint in his reputation. Two reasons. It was out of his comfort zone, and because he did not want to taint his reputation. Friends, Jonah's so many times like a lot of us. We who are too concerned, or more concerned with our own comfort instead of God's commission. We live many times to guard, guard our own reputation instead of seeking to glorify God. We prioritize that which would bring us recognition and success while the mission is neglected. We're willing to do something for God as long as it doesn't inconvenience our nice, easy, comfortable lives. Lord, have mercy. One day Jesus called a man to follow him, and he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that sounds like a reasonable request, but the problem was that this man's father was not dead yet. What he was basically saying to Jesus, wait until my father is dead and I don't have this responsibility, then I'll have more time to follow you. That's what he was saying. Many people are essentially saying the same thing. They're saying to God, wait until I'm finished with this project, then I'll follow you. After I graduate from college, after I establish my business, let me first settle down and get married. There are other things that are more, more of a priority at this time. And when things are more convenient, then I will follow you. There are people who are saying to God, Lord, I will go if I can go to Israel, if I can go to Tarshish. But if you want me to go to Nineveh, you're going to have to wait until I'm old and I can't do anything else. Many people are, want, are giving the leftover of their lives to God and making God a retirement plan. But young people, why not give the best years of your life to the Lord? Amen? Jesus gave his best for us. Let's give the best years of our life to him. You see, friends, in this journey called life, God does not want us to make him the spare wheel that we resort to when we're in trouble. God is not to be the spare wheel. He is to be the steering wheel that steers the direction of your life. God knows what's best. And when we put him first, he will never lead us astray. Amen? Amen. Jesus responded to this man. And he said to him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. What Christ was saying is this. Don't put off for tomorrow what I'm calling you to do today. 
Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let those who care not for eternal realities deal with the temporal things of life. Let those who do not know the truth deal with earthly affairs. Why? Because you, my child, are called to a much higher and holier work than caring for the dead. You're called to live for something more than just flipping burgers and growing produce. You're called to live for something more than building houses and fixing cars and counting money and teaching math and pulling teeth and filling cavities and prescribing drugs and performing surgeries and singing songs and preaching sermons. Surely God can use us in all of these different contexts and capacities. But remember that these things are not an end in themselves. This is just a temporal means to an eternal end. It is the means of connecting with people in all, those, all of those different contexts so that we can connect them to Christ. It is a making, it's making a living so that we can show people how to live. It's making money so that we can move forward the mission. I heard it once said that your job is what you're paid for, but your calling is what you're made for. Don't allow your job or your career to be, to be an excuse for neglecting your calling. But let God use your job and career to fulfill your calling. Amen? You don't need a title or a position to work for God. Just do the duty that lies nearest. Be faithful in the little things. And though no earthly hand is laid upon you, make sure that your life is in the hands of God. Amen? So chapter 1 talks about the fact that Jonah was called and chosen. He had a name which reflected his mission and his message. But instead of being faithful, he went to Tarshish. He was hiding and running from his calling. He was unfaithful. God sent a storm, but the storm did not wake Jonah up. And so God provided a fish for Jonah. Not for him to eat, but a fish to eat him. And tomorrow morning, we're going to continue our study in chapter 2 to see that what Jonah experienced in the belly of the fish is the same thing that we need to experience in order for us to be called and chosen and faithful. And so today as we close, are you running from your mission like Jonah was? Are you wasting your time and money doing your own thing? Chasing your own dreams instead of following God's will? I would invite you, friends, to taste and to see that the Lord is good and let him be in control of your life. To put him first. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.